0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. An essential service hub in Chicago is overwhelmed. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. If you live in Chicago and need a pothole fix or need to file a non emergency police report, you call the 311 hotline. It's also a resource for getting connected to immediate shelter. The call center has received more than double the requests since before the pandemic. And now, with thousands of asylum seekers and a rise in street homelessness, the city's 311 helpline is struggling to keep up with the demand for shelter. To learn more, we are talking to WBEZ reporters Anna Sovchenka and Amy Chin. Anna, you both started investigating the city's 311 helpline earlier this year. Why was this something that you wanted to take a closer look at?
1: So, in in March, I went to the Forest Park CTA station, um, and uh, a social service agency called the Night Ministry. They uh, set up shop there once a week, and they offer hot meals and medical medical care to unhoused people there. And I was talking to the people that were queuing up. And I was asking them, what do you guys need? And most of them told me that they needed a place to sleep um, other than the train or, I don't know, some alleyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked, well, have you tried to get a shelter bed or anything of that sort? And most of the people said that it's almost impossible to get one. And I even spoke to a caseworker that was on duty there that night. And I asked her, how difficult it, is it for you to find one of your clients a bed? And she told me that in a year on the job, she's never actually successfully been able to get one of her clients a bed. And I thought that was bizarre. Wow. So,
0: and, and so some of us, Anna, have, not, have never dialed 311, right? Yes. So, so walk us through what that's like. How does the hotline work for shelter requests? What's a phone call sound like?
1: Yeah, so you pick up the phone, you dial three one one. one there's a lit menu sort of thing that comes up. They ask you which what you're looking for. If it's uh, shelter requests, you press a certain number, then you wait to get matched to an agent. An agent will ask you some intake questions like, uh, are you safe? Do you need transportation? Uh, that sort of thing. After that, um, they tell you that it might take up to 48 hours for someone to get back to you. When the call ends, they send you a message with your service request number, which is essentially what you use to track your request. Mm -hmm. And if all goes smoothly after that, uh, someone from the Salvation Army, which is a social service agency that uh, the city contracts to manage the shelter coordination system, they will coordinate shelter for you. They will send a van to pick you up from your location and then transport you to the shelter which you have been matched with. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we know from the data is that, that doesn't always happen.
0: Not like that. So tell us more, Amy, about how the city is tracking these calls.
2: Yeah, so they have one kind of centralized database in Salesforce that, um, like Anna said, uses service request numbers to track calls, and it, they track all the information that they ask in the intake. Although, of course, some of that information we can't request because it's kind of uh, identifying information about a person. But they also track um, what happens to that call, theoretically, yeah. <laughs> the outcome. And that's kind of what we saw was really, really spotty.
0: Yeah, you found some flaws in the data that, that's making it hard for a lot of people to actually get some help, right? Exactly. What What's going on exactly?
2: Yeah, so we, we're seeing just, you know, a skyrocketing number of calls. Um, but we actually can't really tell what's happening to the majority of those calls. Um in fact, I think 75% of those calls are marked with an outcome that is basically a catch-all category. So uh, the city and the Department of Family and Support Services, which is the uh, department that kind of oversees the system, they told us that these two categories, these two kind of catch-all categories could mean anything from someone actually getting placed in a bed for the night to a request getting canceled. It's a to it being a duplicate call to someone, um, you know, telling them that they're at an address but not actually being there mm-hmm. or them just not having enough beds. So it could really re- mean a, <laughs> anything, which is kind of meaningless at this So point.
0: after the fact, there's no way to go back in and see, OK, John Smith called for a shelter and this is exactly what happened after John Smith called.
2: Not to our knowledge and not based wow. on the data we saw.
0: So, Anna, what happens to people who aren't able to get connected to immediate shelter?
1: We don't know because these numbers are just so spotty. Um, they stay on the streets. They keep sleeping in alleyways. They keep sleeping on trains. And they rely on social service agencies like the Night Ministry or Haymarket, which do outreach, very specific outreach, on the red and blue CTA lines and you know, they offer unhoused people medical care and and hot meals and that sort of stuff. But we just know that there are so many people that are falling through the cracks of the system. And just for reference, we uh, asked uh, DFSS, the Department of Family and Support Services, if they are aware that they're missing Data on the outcomes of thousands of 311 calls. Yeah, what did they say? They did not acknowledge uh, whether they are aware that this data is missing or not. Um, They do. They did say that they're working on evaluating how their system works, and they meet monthly with the Salvation Army to uh, sort of look over their metrics and and their goals and whatnot. Um, But. Again, they did not acknowledge if they're aware that they're missing mm. all of this data.
0: Wow, what did you find Amy about uh, requests that were successful? like How did those placements go?
2: Yeah, um, so what we were able to see from the data is kind of just this floor the the minimum number of people that they 've actually successfully placed we don 't know if there's actually more. But um, we know that calls have more than doubled in the last couple of years since 2019. And it seems like the number of people placed has kind of remained relatively flat and slightly declined.
0: Do we know what percentage that is?
2: I even hesitate in to relation say to the percentage. Number of calls? Um, but I, it, I would say it's kind of halved from what we were able to see. About half. Uh, like about 15 percent right now. 15%, yeah. 15%. Oh. but that also is just kind of a fuzzy number because we actually don't know exactly how much
0: how many calls yeah. there are in, in total so amy you mentioned that the calls are skyrocketing what's driving that
2: so we spoke to a couple advocates and shelter managers about this i think it's it's kind of three things um one is you know the pandemic right job losses from the pandemic people are losing their income and not able to keep up with rent, getting evicted. And then the second is that the uh, eviction moratorium uh, that was statewide ended in October 2021. Right, And so in the data, we literally see kind of a spike in the number of calls that occurred right after the eviction moratorium ended. So you have more people needing kind of emergency shelter or interim shelter to get a bed for the night when they're getting kicked out of their apartments. And then the migrant crisis. Um, We spoke to advocates, immigration advocates who were we're saying that they've been told uh, from the city that they need to call uh, that the asylum seekers need to call 311 if they're looking for anywhere to stay. Right. And so that's kind of driving a lot of the calls. And again, in the data, you can see like right in August when uh, asylum seekers started coming into Chicago is when you're starting to everything see goes spike. up. Yep.
0: So as we we've, we've talked about on uh, several data entry errors here and, and flaws with how the information is actually entered into the system. What do we know about how well resourced the 311 call center is when it comes to fielding these requests?
1: Yeah. So as far as the team of people that are actually handling the, uh, all of these calls, uh, we know that uh, this hotline, specifically the shelter aspect of 311, they get about 160 to 200 shelter related calls a day the task of fielding those calls falls on anywhere between two to 10 staff workers. And their job is to dispatch all of these calls, uh, you know, call people back and Mm -hmm. then uh, coordinate transportation. They are also manually entering all of this data that they're collecting from all of these calls into this database uh, that uh, we've been talking about. And for context, when, when they are transporting clients to shelters they have a van that they drive all around the city collecting people from anywhere from the north to the south side there's no sort of centralized pickup location so just the scope or yeah the scope that they cover the service area that they're working with is huge two to ten people two to ten people per shift
0: We've talked about this growing migrant crisis, too, Ana. So just give us a sense of how that is also affecting what you just described.
1: Yeah. So we know that the city's shelter system operates about 3,000 beds. And uh, once uh, the migrant crisis became a priority for the city, they set up uh, about 4,100 beds specifically for migrants. Um, But we know that arrivals are now have now surpassed about 10,000 people, and that has created this spillover effect with migrants being placed in shelters uh, designated for Chicagoans experiencing traditional street homelessness. And basically what that what that has created is this environment where there's just a extreme shortage of beds. And way too many people yeah. that are calling this hotline asking for help. And
0: and Amy, Anna mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I mean, did you present your, your findings to the Department of Family and Support Services and, and how did they respond?
2: Yeah, we did. Uh, we sent them multiple emails, um, you know, word for word, even copy and pasted from our story at the time. Uh, and and like Anna said, they they acknowledge certain things. They acknowledge that okay, yes, there are certain categories that we're working to fix to make more specific, like those categories, those catch all categories mm-hmm. that I mentioned. But by and large, they kind of just uh, didn't comment. They said, without looking into the data, we can't comment on this. Um, but we gave them you know multiple days, almost a week to to look into the data. Um, but wow. yeah.
0: Yeah. Did they at least say anything about how they plan on addressing homelessness and, and this surge in asylum seekers, Ana?
1: They did acknowledge that they're working on overhauling the system and that means the shelter system. And that means a couple of things. They want to renovate shelters. Um, they're working on bringing back uh, the bed capacity that they used to have before the pandemic. Um, They had about 3,300 beds uh, before the pandemic Mm -hmm. began. But uh, once COVID hit, they had to reduce bed capacities and shelters to stop the spread of the virus. Um, But we know that those uh, numbers haven't rebounded, uh, bed numbers haven't rebounded from pre-pandemic levels. So they're Mm -hmm. working on bringing that back up. Aside from that, they're also... Uh, looking to purchase motels and hotels and repurposing them into new shelters uh, that would also, you know, increase uh, the 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 system's bed capacity. Um, and in light of the migrant crisis, they say they're going to keep evaluating what they can do to meet demand.
0: Mayor Brandon Johnson wants to boost social services citywide, but needs to find the money for it. Right. What are some possible funding sources for for the city's housing needs?
1: Well, the Biden administration uh, recently named a couple of uh, major U.S. cities that will receive two years of, quote, tailored support from the federal government to reduce street homelessness and connect people to permanent housing. Um, Chicago's on that list. It will receive uh, two years of that support. Okay. And there will also be a federal official embedded in the area that will be helping with those efforts. Uh, we don't know what that what that's going to look like yet, um, but at least it's something that's on the horizon for the city.
0: We've been talking with WBEZ's Anna Savchenka and Amy Chin. You can read their full story at wbez.org. Thank you both.
1: Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. Let's
0: turn now to possible solutions for how the city's shelter system can work better for unhoused people and for asylum seekers. We've assembled a panel of experts with thoughts on how to improve the system, including Doug Schenkelberg, executive director of the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, Mark Mulro, president of A Safe Haven, which runs a youth overnight shelter and an adult interim shelter, and LaShonda Brown, chief officer of quality and impact of the Primo Center for Women and Children in Inglewood. Doug, help us understand who we're talking about when we say unhoused people in Chicago. How many people lack unstable housing and what kind of situations could they be in?
3: Sure, absolutely. So Chicago Coalition for the Homeless does an annual estimate of the number of people who are experiencing homelessness in the city. And we use census data and some administrative data to do that. Our estimate is that's about 65,000 people in the city of Chicago who are experiencing homelessness. And those are people who are on the street those are people in the shelter system, and those are people who are doubled up or couch surfing. So, um, and they, the, that group makes up the largest percentage of that. So, there's the also folks who are
0: doubled up yes. make up the largest. Yeah, exactly.
3: Um, now, there's other measurements like the point in time count, which is done in January each year that looks just at shelter and people on the street. That's a much smaller number because of the way that that's done. Um, so, but we really look at the larger 65,000 number to really understand the full scope of the problem.
0: Mark, what would you say that people often get wrong about homelessness? Are are there certain misconceptions that you feel need to be addressed?
4: Oh, definitely. I think a lot of people assume that homelessness is a choice, um, which is not accurate, or people are homeless because they're failing to do something or they're failing to get a job or to work or to support their systems. But there's a total lack of affordable housing in Chicago. And the average cost of rent exceeds what most individuals are making in, in their wages. So there, it's a comp, very complex situation where you can't peg. There is no one face of homeless. Many people find themselves there due to changes in jobs, mm-hmm. um, due to medical conditions, substance use, uh, behavioral health. It's it's a myriad of, of things that affect and impact people. So it is that they're trying to peg what... The homeless person is is like that's that's a dangerous game to play
0: various situations can can land you right there right um lashana you specifically work with mothers and children who need immediate shelter so tell us what unique challenges that group faces
5: Primo Center. We started off with the women and children. We have also moved over to working with um, single fathers, okay, with uh, at least at least one child, and we also have families. We have two locations. One of our locations is women and children, and that's located in Inglewood. And our Austin um, location has, you know, families. However, their family shift, you know, makes up. And what I see is a lot of families coming in with a lot of trauma and with a lot of um, behavioral health issues due to childhood trauma. And so they're coming into into the facility. We have our idea of what we think we need to do to help them, but we've turned the tables basically, allowing them to guide their treatment because we, as Mark said, can't just assume Mm. why this family is homeless.
0: When you say they come in with with trauma, what what does that present itself
5: as? They're coming in with a lot of childhood trauma, a lot of generational homelessness, um, You know, being raised by parents who are drug addicted or they were homeless themselves, a lot of sexual abuse. And so that affects them from their childhood to adulthood. And it really plays a factor into why they're homeless. Yeah. And so basically we're trying to break down, you know, the reasons they're homeless versus saying you need a house. Let's fight and let's advocate. Let's get income. Let's get you house. But we can get you housed. But the thing is, will you be able to maintain your housing? We have to first help you at least stabilize to maintain that housing.
0: And you just said a term that I think several of us who just heard it are still trying to wrap our minds around, and that was generational homelessness.
5: Yes. Prior to me taking the position at the Primo Center, I worked at another um, agency called Beacon, and where we sent teams out into the shelter system to provide um, therapeutic services such such as case management, community support, Mm -hmm. and therapy. Um, And when I got to the Primo Center, I saw several of those children that are now adults there. And I was shocked because I've always worked behind the scenes. Now I'm in the forefront of homelessness versus just making administrative decisions on what should be done. You know, now I'm on the forefront and I'm able to see and engage and try to figure out like what happened. And so working with these families, you can see the trauma that they've been through and what makes it so hard for them to get housing and stay housed. Yeah.
0: Doug, I want to go back to something you brought up before, which was the the point in time count. Mm -hmm. Right. And for those who might not be familiar, that's when the the Chicago Department of Family and Support Services uh, tallies the number of residents who are experiencing homelessness uh, in homeless shelters, uh, encampments other unsheltered areas and they do this on one night in particular in right. January. Right. Um so this year the department uh, counted more than 6000 people and asylum seekers were accounted mm-hmm. for in that number and uh, were about a third of right. that number. Right. Tell us Doug what kind of snapshot this count provides you know for these two converging crises homelessness right. and the migrant crisis.
3: Right. Um, so there's a couple different things. So with the point in time count, it's, you know, one, it, it's, it's an undercount of the number of people experiencing homelessness um, because it is done on one night. It's done on one, you know, typically a very cold night because, you know, it's January in Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, people are finding other places to be safe that evening. And it may not be in a traditional shelter setting or in uh, an encampment. They might be sleeping on someone's floor or something like that. So you're missing a lot of people. When you do it that way. Mm. Um, you know, with the uh, asylum seekers, you know, if you look at the data, a lot of those individuals that were counted in this most recent count were in shelters that have been stood up just to help asylum seekers. Some of them are in the quote unquote traditional shelters as well. Yeah. Um, you know, what it shows is that our system, you know, doesn't have sufficient capacity to serve um, everyone. And then it, that capacity, was limited before we had this current crisis of asylum seekers coming in large numbers to the city of Chicago. Um, And so it's uh, just is showing that our system isn't set up to serve um, everyone who needs it.
0: What spillover effects have you noticed, Mark, at at shelters around the city?
4: Well, certainly all the shelters are being taxed. I mean, they're their resources are being taxed at a very difficult time. You know, post-COVID hiring was difficult to begin with. Um, So when you're trying to put together resources, because at a Safe Haven, we individually case manage. Each person comes in to deliver what service they need. Now you have another population coming in who have specific needs, and the city or the federal government hasn't necessarily set up the pathway to get them those needs. Yeah. You know, for mm-hmm. housing and for a job. You have to have you have to have your identification, paperwork, you have to have your um permits. And the the system isn't set up to deliver those. So there with a lot of them are what we're seeing is that they go to the cash economy. They try to get jobs um at other places. And it's it's just a very it's a complex issue that um, I think one of the things that Doug brought up that we're not even addressing the total number we're trying to address. We have these f- numbers that are so underreported. Mm-hmm. And then when you're trying to set up systems to deliver the needs and you're underreporting the numbers, you're, you're not going to have the resources that are necessary to meet that need.
0: I understand, LaShonda, that migrant families currently reside at, at Primo. We do at both of our um, locations. We have migrant families. And I would say
5: it's a challenge. But, you know, we're up for the task It's just trying to, you know, meet their language barriers and their financial, you know, future financial income. Because right now we're basically taking on the cost of supporting the family's needs by ensuring, you know, they have food, they have clothing, they have the basic necessities. Mm. So that's just something we, we have to take on. And we know that number is just going to increase. So we're trying to be proactive. But again, as Doug and Mark said, financially, where is this going to come from?
0: As we discussed earlier on the program, one of the resources that people turn to for immediate shelter is that 311 hotline. Uh, there's a recent WBEZ analysis that reveals that the system is both under resourced and unreliable when it comes to completing shelter requests, right? You work with the 311 Response Team, LaShonda, every day. So what's your experience been like working with that helpline? My
5: experience has been sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work well. Uh, I can say for the Primo Center, when we get the call for them to bring a family to our facility, that works smoothly. But we get a lot of outside calls asking, can we give them a bed? but again we're a delegate agency of the Department of Family and Support Services so we are required to accept referrals directly from you know the 311 crisis mobile team yeah and a lot of times they will tell us we've been at the police station for 7 days we've been here for 10 days and you know there's nothing we basically can do but if you know there's a crisis sometimes we will reach out to our delegate agency and see if you know if there's something we can do but we have to understand that other shelter providers are in the same situation as we are, and they, you know, want to take in families mm-hmm. as well. But we have to, you know, follow their protocol. But again, when folks are calling three one one and they're sleeping at the police station and or hospital, they have to have their phone on them at all times because if there's a housing, a, I'm, sure, a, I'm sorry, a shelter match, they have to be present. Yeah. And so, if they don't pick up that call, they're removed off the list. And they will have to go call back and get back on that list. Wow. Yeah. So if they don't have a phone, like if they're at the police station, they need to sit next to the um, person who has the phone. Mm-hmm. Same thing as the hospital next to a security guard. That way, if 311 calls back and say, hey, family, A, we have a placement for you. But if you're not there, you're coming off the list and you're going to basically start all over again. So wow. you may have been number four, but now you may be number 44.
0: Wow. What can you add to this here, Doug? Just 311 trying to manage...
3: Yeah,
5: I think you know, one of the things that this
3: shows is it's a, one more proof point of that we underinvest in the system that's supposed to serve people experiencing homelessness. So when you have the emergency response system that is three one one unable to serve all the people that call that they you know don't get callbacks or the you know they have incredibly long wait times to get a callback, that's one area that the system's not serving them. And that, you know, is also that we don't have enough shelter beds. We don't have enough uh, permanent housing units with support services. For there are folks.
0: transportation issues, too. There are
3: transportation issues. So it's, you know, we have a system that supposedly is supposed to go and pick up someone wherever they are in the city. Um, and, you know, there isn't the infrastructure to actually do that for individuals. And it's, you know, it's a uh, – the through line is the chronic underinvestment uh, in the system to serve people experiencing homelessness. And you're always going to have failures in a system that doesn't have proper investment.
0: Yeah. So, Mark, what housing solutions would you propose here?
3: Oh,
4: (laughs) do we have an hour? Uh, Um, We're going to try um, to fit it in. I'll tell you, uh, there's a lot of things. I think one is with the 311 system, remove the bureaucracy from the system. Shelters used to be able to talk to each other to get better placements or more appropriate placements. But since it has to go through this system that sometimes doesn't place people for 48 72 hours, um, we end up maybe getting inappropriate placements at a a facility where you're kind of left to try to figure it out for yourselves. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, there are investments that can be made um, with housing, affordable housing, but also the services that go along with it, you know, financial literacy, helping people learn how to remain housed, put them on a path to a more living wage income. Um, Good luck trying to live in Chicago on minimum wage. I mean, and Afford yeah. afford anything, and we, as we all acknowledge, the system is terribly underfunded. Um, yeah, you know, you're you're trying to take people in crisis, and then the allocation is twenty-two dollars a day. It's like you can't even live in Chicago for that. So it's, um, I think we all, you know, <laughs> we we would all love to see a bigger checkbook, but we'd also like to see a a more managed system to provide the direct service to individuals so you can move them from that system.
0: Well, the city's working to overhaul its shelter system by buying hotels and motels and repurposing them into new shelter facilities. Now, it's still in its early stages, but what, what do you think of that kind of plan, LaShonda?
5: Oh, well, I, I think that's very interesting because what will happen to those buildings once allegedly the families are placed into housing? We've invested all this money into those hotels just to serve a temporary purpose where we can probably look at other avenues, maybe expanding the current shelter systems we have by um, offering them more money to maybe expand their total number of beds and increase their case management um, staff, just so many other things. But I understand, you know, the predicament that the city is in. And I'm sure the commissioner, she's doing her best to make sure that everyone, you know, that we're compassionate, that we are providing services to those folks that has already been in the system and those folks that are, you know, coming from the southern border as well. So I haven't really processed that yet, Um, again, due to my work within the shelter and then Primo's foot at the table, you know, of all these other, um, such as coordinated entry and, you know, such as HMIS, just different avenues we try to keep our foot. And you this, know, as, as I said, table. is still in its early yes, stages, right? Yes, you still have to wrap your mind yes. around it.
0: Uh, before we go, Doug, I mean, Chicago is expected to get support from the federal government for two years to reduce homelessness in the city. So, briefly, tell us the specific resources that you want to see from that aid.
3: Well, I think you know the those resources you know help expand existing systems. I would say that you know the. What we need is a longer term strategy and we need a longer term investment. You know, and, and as you know, we've been working on a campaign called Bring Chicago Home mm-hmm. for several years now, um, which is about creating a dedicated funding stream at scale to provide housing and services to people. Which it sounds
0: like the housing. mayor backs.
3: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, as a candidate, Brandon Johnson was very supportive and he's continued to be supportive since he's uh, entered office, which is very encouraging to us. And so I think we're on a, a, a solid path to getting this in place. And this is what we need as a city. We need to stop waiting for a crisis to happen and scrambling to figure out how we respond to that crisis, but rather have a long-term strategy with real investment that reduces the impact of a crisis when
0: it hits. We've been talking with Doug Schenkelberg with the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, LaShonda Brown with Primo Center for Women and Children in Inglewood, and Mark Mulro with A Safe Haven. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you, you. Thanks for having us. This episode of Reset was produced by Stephanie Kim, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Meha Ahmed. Stay up to date on the most important stories happening in our region by subscribing to our podcast. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a rating and review on your favorite app. It's a simple thing that can help more listeners find our show. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow.